Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, the book of Hosea, chapter one. Well, we're going to open Hosea, chapter one today. But before we do, I'm going to advise you ahead of time that we're going to crawl through the first several verses at a snail's pace because much has to be explained for us to operate from the correct basis and understanding God's message through Hosea. Now, it's not going to be like this throughout our entire study. So let's begin with summing up what we learned last week about the man, Hosea, about the circumstances, about the conditions of his time that led Jehovah to use this prophet in the way he, that he did. Well, Hosea lived and prophesied in the 700s BC. And at this time, the former unified nation of Israel under kings David and Solomon had long ago become split into two separate kingdoms due to a bloody civil war. One kingdom was called Israel, also known as Ephraim. The other was called Judah. The kingdom called Israel uh, occupied the, the northern tribal territories, and so among Bible commentators garnered the designation as the northern kingdom. The kingdom of Judah is known as the southern kingdom. So now the northern kingdom consisted of ten tribes of Israel, with Ephraim as the largest and the most powerful. The southern kingdom consisted of two tribes, with the tribe of Judah as the dominant one. Hosea resided in, and he prophesied about the northern kingdom. Now, when Hosea first began to prophesy, it was late in the reign of King Jeroboam II. And during Jeroboam's reign, Israel was prosperous, it lived, lived uh, peaceably with its Gentile neighbors. And this geopolitical situation was due to Jeroboam's propensity to make treaties with the nations surrounding him, and encouraging social and, and religious syncretism of his people with theirs. Now, syncretism, that's a fancy word, and it means to combine two elements of two or more dissimilar things to arrive at a condition that is noticeably different and less pure than before the combining began. So religiously speaking, Israel maintained some elements of their ancient Hebrew faith, but also added elements of other nearby religious systems. And since nearly all of the surrounding nations worshipped Baal in one form or another, Israel began to do the same. Now, they kept Jehovah as their own national god, but many elements of the local pagan religious systems were willingly added to their religious practices, including various gods and goddesses. Now, societally, Israel did the same. Intermarriage was encouraged, social customs adopted. In the name of economic well-being, tolerance, and security, Israel ruined their relationship with Jehovah their God. Well, after Jeroboam's death, ending his family dynasty that had begun a century earlier with King Jehu, Zechariah took the throne. He was murdered in a few months. And five more kings ruled over Israel after him, each one murdered in succession. This all happened over the relatively short time of 30 years. So upon Jeroboam's death, the northern kingdom began a steady decline into chaos. 
a weakening economy, and more and more pressure from the superpower of the region, Assyria. Hosea witnessed it all. Israel's enviable pinnacle, their steep decline, and then finally this deep valley of despair. He prophesied over a period of about 35 years. And because Hosea prophesied over such an extended period of time, then we see chapters of Ephraim Israel's history played out in chronological order that reflects these different realities that came at various stages of, of uh, Israel's decline. Now we spent considerable time last week discussing just what exactly a prophet was according to biblical history. And we discovered that one cannot put the duties or the job description of a prophet into a nice, neat form. It changed. It evolved over the centuries from the time of the first person that was called prophet in the Bible. That was Abraham. Now, we're not going to review it all, but I will mention that of the prophets that came before Hosea, the, the one most similar to him has to be Elijah. The similarity is that both Elijah and Hosea prophesied that God's wrath was coming, and the religious situation for both involved a battle against Baal worship. Even so, Hosea is classified a little different from Elijah in that Hosea belonged to a, a, a new breed called the writing prophets. That is, they, or, or some scribe, recorded and handed down their prophecies in written form. And those written forms became books of the Bible named for that particular prophet. The writing prophets are divided into two subcategories called minor and, and major prophets, with Hosea being classified as among the minor prophets. Now, minor is just Latin. It means less or fewer. And it doesn't apply to their status, it doesn't apply to the importance of them or their message, but rather it only reflects the length or the brevity of their writings. Hosea is kind of the cutoff point of the minor prophets. That is, his writings are the longest among those classified as minor. So in brief, Hosea prophesied the end of the northern kingdom and then their expulsion from the promised land as God's punishment for their grave sins of idolatry and unfaithfulness. And at the moment of their expulsion, it did not include the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah's punishment in exile would come about 130 years later. Now, as God tends to do, He would use another nation to bring about His wrath upon His chosen people. That nation would be Assyria. Now, I want you to notice something that we touched on last time. Regardless of their personal righteousness before God, that is, individual by individual, the entire population of Israel would be judged and therefore affected as a single entity. This punishment would be a corporate punishment. It would be enacted upon the whole of the population. No one would be spared just because he or she might be, in God's eyes, righteous. This is a good historical example of the principle of God judging us from the platform of two spheres, the personal, individual sphere, and the corporate or the group sphere. Nothing has changed here in the 21st century. If today God determined to pour out His wrath on the USA as a whole, 
or the UK, or Australia, or South America, or South Africa, or Brazil, or China, or wherever it is you might live. Even as a sincere believer, you will, on a physical level, be affected by it. You're not going to be spared. On the other hand, from a spiritual level, you will be spared in the sense that God will welcome you into his heaven should you perish and he will bring he will be with you during whatever ordeals you and your your neighbors might suffer during this time but as a member of a group your experience will be no different than anyone else's wicked or righteous that's kind of sobering And as a result of the exile of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, God promises to eventually bring those people back to the land. But it would be future generations of Israelites that return, not those currently responsible for the sins of idolatry and unfaithfulness. This is the same principle and pattern of what happened to Israel when they left Egypt. They were delivered from Egypt, They were given God's commandments. He formed a covenant relationship with them, the covenant of Moses. But then they broke the covenant. So God would not allow Israel into the promised land until the sinning generation completely died off in the wilderness. And the next generation of Israel was born and brought to adulthood. Now the reality is that until fairly recently, 21st century, Ephraim Israel did not begin its return to the promised land. And now they are coming in increasing numbers and with a remembrance of their ancient tribal affiliations. So the weight from the punishment of their Assyrian exile to their return to the land has been 2,700 years. Well, in 745 B.C., Tiglath-Pileser III became the king of Assyria, and he had empire building in mind. And this ambitious ruler began gobbling up the few remaining independent nations that surrounded him, and then finally set his sights on the northern kingdom, Israel. And since tribute, taxes, and wealth That was always at the core of the reason that aggressive kings attacked other nations. And the kings of Israel at first agreed to pay Tiglath-Pileser's price in exchange for being a vassal state. This meant that Israel was granted permission to keep their own Israelite king and government. But those kings had a king above them, the king of Assyria. Well, a headstrong young man killed Israel's sitting king and began an anti-Assyria movement. His name was Pekah. Now, King Pekah rallied Ephraim Israel to resist paying taxes to Assyria. And this signaled the beginning of the end. Pekah was then murdered. He was replaced by Hoshea ben Elah. He immediately reinstituted paying tribute to Assyria, so Assyria relented. Some years later, Tiglath-Pileser was succeeded by Shalmaneser V. King Hosea saw this as a moment of Assyrian weakness, so he approached Egypt to see if they'd be an ally with him against Assyria. He also stopped paying tribute. Shalmaneser attacked Israel because of this attempted alliance and the rebellion against paying taxes. Eventually, in 723 BC, Assyria captured Israel's capital, Samaria. Well, that was the end of Ephraim Israel as a nation. This King Hosea, or Hosea I'm speaking of, by the way, was not the prophet Hosea. Now, the prophet Hosea stopped his prophesying shortly before the fall of Samaria. There is nothing in his book 
about that final battle or even the first wave or two of Assyrian attacks upon Israel that would lead to its fall. The belief among the traditions of Judaism is that Hosea escaped to the still independent southern kingdom of Judah before these final battles where Hosea then completed all of his writings. Now while that's speculation, it's also the most plausible, most likely scenario. So the fall of Israel and then their exile has led to the famous Ten Lost Tribes of Israel legend that we've all heard about. And as it turns out, they're not so lost after all. So now, with that background, let's open the book of Hosea. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1. We shall read it all. Hosea chapter 1. Short little chapter. Go there with me, please. This is the word of Adonai that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Yezkiah, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Yeroboam, that's Jeroboam, the son of Joash, that's uh, Joash, king of Israel. And Adonai's opening words in speaking to Hosea were to instruct Hosea, Hosea, the prophet Hosea, go marry a whore, have children with this whore, for the land is engaged in flagrant whoring, whoring away from Adonai. So he went and married Gomer, the daughter of Divlaim. And she conceived and bore him a son. And Adonai said to him, Call him Yisrael, because in only a short time I will punish the house of Jehu for having shed blood at Yisrael. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And when that day comes, I will break the bow of Israel in the Yisrael-Jezreel valley. Well, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And Adonai said to him, Name her Lo-Ruchmah, unpitied, for I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel, and by no means will I forgive them, but I will pity the house of Judah. I will save them, not by bow, sword, battle, horses, or cavalry, but by Adonai their God. And after weaning Lo-Ruchmah, she conceived and bore a son. And Adonai said, named him Lo-Ami, not my people, because you are not my people, and I will not be your God. All right, this first verse gives us plenty to deal with. Notice, think back to your English days in school, some of you a little closer to that. Grammatically, the voice is the third person. Okay? That is, he, she, it, they, not Hosea saying, I, me. So clearly a scribe or an editor wrote this first verse, perhaps even the entire first two chapters, because it speaks about Hosea, but it's not Hosea speaking. Now, one of the difficult things that all Bible students that go beyond the surface must face and deal with is that for centuries, much of what we find written down now as our treasured Bible was at first transmitted by oral traditions that were passed down generation to generation. When writing began to replace oral transmission of the traditions, it was common for ancient people to employ paid scribes, because scribes were among the few who were highly trained in the art of writing. That doesn't mean that the people were illiterate or that they couldn't write at all, but their writing abilities were relatively rudimentary. And there certainly only a very few could construct a complex message in a written format and do it in a coherent way using proper grammar and spelling and structure and so on. And by way of illustration, 
what I'm getting at. You, I, most people can add, subtract, multiply, and divide to some basic level. We can balance a checkbook, we can add up our bills, and so on. But that hardly makes us mathematicians. There is a specialist occupation of people who are highly trained in advanced mathematical skills that are employed to deal with complex calculations that the vast majority of us could never hope to master. It was similar for writing in ancient times, and more so the farther back in time that we go, hence the need for scribes. Now, more than likely, Hosea employed a scribe that he explained much to, a scribe that helped him order and construct his work and apparently write some of, actually write some of it. And as with this chapter one, the scribe provided an introduction and a background as a proper literary starting point. Or as we might think of it, kind of an extended title for the book. In fact, much like a true biblical Jewish parable, as those that were told by Jesus, which had a specific structure, it had a form that identified it as, as a parable, as opposed to words that just were really just allegory or illustration or metaphor, the opening words of Hosea also form an identifiable structure. In Hebrew, the opening words of Hosea read, Debar Yehovah Asher El. It means, the word of Yehovah which was unto. And we find the same precise word formula to open the books of the prophets Joel, Micah, and Zephaniah. Now, without going deeply into ancient biblical Hebrew, okay, what this means for us is that there was a recognized format devised and in use for the recording of prophecies of biblical prophets, and it constituted what was considered as a proper opening for their works in that particular era. This reality lends all the more evidence to my contention that indeed a scribe was involved in Hosea's and in each of these prophetic works that I just mentioned. Now from a spiritual standpoint, something extremely important is being parted, imparted with these opening words. A theological declaration is being made. What the reader is about to study is, on the whole, a message from God. Hosea is just passing it along. And in Hosea's case, it is mostly in the form of recounting a very strange life drama that unfolded in order for Jehovah to create um, a visual aid a visual aid for people around Hosea to see. In the shorter written form of his name, Hosea means he has delivered. In the longer written form in Hebrew, it's Yehovah has delivered. Now, Before we go any farther, I want to explain to you that while it is most common to say that in Hebrew God's formal name is vocalized as Yahweh or Yahweh, I don't think that's correct. I think it's a three-syllable word, not two, and that it's vocalized something like Yehovah. The vowel sounds could be slightly different because the ancient Hebrew didn't use vowels in their alphabet, so some guesswork's involved. And no doubt different Hebrew dialects, and there were several, might have pronounced it slightly differently over the ages. Nonetheless, it's in my estimation, the early Latinized form of God's name that's so common in very old Christian Bibles and among the church, which is Jehovah, is further evidence that God's name was spoken as three syllables, not two. And we can agree to disagree about it. 
But Yehovah is how you're going to usually hear it out of my mouth throughout this study of the book of Hosea. Now, only in the opening two verses of Hosea is the prophet ever identified. Other than that he's the son of a man named Beri, and we have no idea who that is, we have no other identification. We don't know what tribe he was part of, nor exactly even where he lived up in the northern kingdom. Well, the term used, and this is where I really need your focus for the next few minutes, okay? The term used to characterize. What God gave to Hosea is in Hebrew, dabar, in English, word. Now, this Hebrew term is more complex concept than how in modern times we use the term word. As an example, in ancient Hebrew culture, the term wisdom didn't only mean knowledge or common sense or something like that. But rather, wisdom was also seen as a living entity. By living, I don't mean that allegorically. I mean that for real. Wisdom was even assigned a female gender. So we'll sometimes see it spoken of as lady wisdom. Wisdom was envisioned as a divine entity, a manifestation of sorts of the living God. The term Dabar, word, is similar. Dabar was seen as something of a divine substance coming from heaven. It had of itself power. It had a living nature to it. I want you to think for just a minute about one of the most famous and memorized quotes of the New Testament. John 1.1. What does that say? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Hmm. Now in context, the Apostle John was speaking about Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, being the fleshly embodiment of the Word for his 30 or so years on earth. What did this mean to being a sort of, well, let's put it this way, what did this mean to the Jewish worshipers of the first century? What did this mean to them? I can tell you for sure what it didn't mean. To modern Christians, the term, the Word of God, God's Word, the Word, what do we always think of? The Holy Scriptures, the Bible. So believers often take John 1.1 as meaning that in some strange way, Jesus is the equivalent to the Bible, or that he's the embodiment of the Scriptures, or that in the beginning was the Bible, or at least the concept of the Bible already existed in some ethereal way that would eventually become the physical Bible that can be both spoken and written. And if it's not that, then what does the word mean? For the ancient Hebrews, for the Jews of Christ's day, it did not mean the Scriptures, nor the narrative texts that would form it. The Word was a divine, though mysterious, entity. It was a mystical, a powerful element of God. It was a special manifestation of the God of Israel called the Word. Debar. The word is a term that speaks of an actual presence of Jehovah, not merely literature written on a piece of parchment, no matter how profound and true those words might be. 
I want to say this another way. Because this is so far from how it has been typically understood. See, for Hebrews, since the term the Word did not equate to being the Holy Scriptures, it also didn't equate to that for the prophet John, or rather to the apostle John. Therefore, when we extend that special manifestation of God in the form of the Word to mean what was given to Hosea, it did not mean a whole lot of sentences strung together. Rather, it meant that Hosea was having a special divine encounter with a living agent sent by Jehovah, something that bears God's nature, similar to the way the church often thinks about the Holy Spirit. The word, debar, this was Hosea's burning bush experience. It was similar in essence to that fearful cloud that filled the temple when Solomon completed it. And it was consecrated into use as a declaration that God found it acceptable. In Christian Trinity doctrine language, one could say that the ancients, right up through Yeshua's day, thought of the Word as a person of God. Same way Christians speak of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as persons in an attempt to describe and contemplate the unknowable substance of Jehovah. So it is with that kind of enormous gravitas and awe that those opening words of Hosea speak. He was being visited by God in the form of the Word. Another revelation for us is that we are to understand that the Word came to Hosea at a specific time, at a specific place. It's a historical marker in time that this encounter is recorded and that Israel especially could relate to then and for centuries afterward. It is also fascinating that the list of kings this prophet of the northern kingdom gave us is actually a list of kings of the southern kingdom. Hosea was in no way cut off from the world around him or from having intimate knowledge of what was going on with the Hebrew sister kingdom of Judah. The only king of the north that Hosea mentions is Jeroboam II. And when we look at the separate lists of the kings of the northern and the southern kingdoms side by side, we see that the first Judean king he mentions is Uzziah, and the only king of Israel that he mentions, Jeroboam II, came into power within a year of each other. His list is historically accurate, and the names properly line up. Well, now verse 2 has been interpreted in several different ways. But most literally, and ignoring English grammatic format, it reads something like the beginning of Jehovah speaking through Hosea. Now, we have to take this statement in light of what I just taught you about the first verse and the actual sense of the term, the word, as it is meant when Hosea wrote it down. The word debar is Hebrew. And here in verse, term, to verse 2, the term speaking okay, uses a different form of the same root word that is debir. Debir means speech or talking. So the particular manifestation of God's presence involved in this venture between God and Hosea is called the Word. And the work of the Word is to impart speech. Jehovah's message to Hosea. So what Hosea receives is speech. 
and he receives it from a divine entity called the Word. It's not a dream. It's not a vision. It's audible speech in some, po- some form. Perhaps he hears it. Perhaps it forms his thoughts inside of his mind. Don't know. Now the scribe says, that the first few words that the Word imparted to Hosea was just the beginning of all he would eventually be told, and it would continue for some undefined amount of time. Now, if Hosea had a calendar on his wall and, and, and wore a wristwatch, he could have circled a day and recorded a time when this entire episode began. One can only imagine what Hosea was thinking when it started. I mean, did he immediately understand what was happening to him? Was he just a regular guy with an occupation or a tradecraft and suddenly God's talking to him? Had he been a prophet for some years before this startling event? I mean, can you imagine this happening in our time to yourselves? Would you and others around you Perhaps question your sanity? See, in our modern times, no doubt few would ever believe they were hearing directly from God in the way Hosea was, and even fewer would dare to speak of it to others. Because in the modern world that has been so infected by the atheistic European Enlightened philosophy of the 18th century, anything mystical is usually dismissed is someone's fruitful imagination. But in Hosea's day, it would have been easier for him to accept it, and for those to whom he took God's message to believe it happened. So, if you wonder why prophets like Hosea don't seem to exist in our time or even in the last few centuries, maybe this is exactly the reason. The more sophisticated we get, the less we accept the mysterious, because it's dubbed not scientific. This therefore necessarily limits what God can tell us, and it limits whom will listen. Well, the opening words of verse 2 were not so much information as instruction. The instruction is yet another controversial one that is less about how to translate the Hebrew to English and more about how to understand what it means to impart to us. Verse 2 says, Go marry a whore and have children with this whore, for the land is engaged in flagrant whoring, whoring away from Adonai. Now, look, if you have particularly delicate ears, Hosea is going to be a real challenge for you. Sexual references and sexual relations are front and center. No punches are pulled. Just remember that what you're reading and hearing is from God. It's not from a Hollywood scriptwriter. It's tough. It's harsh. And man, it's indelicate. But it's how it was. So we're going to plow through it and not wince too much. Now, the immediate question that is fiercely debated by Bible scholars is this. Did God really tell Hosea to go marry a whore? To literally search for a prostitute to marry her? The Hebrew word that is most often translated as whore, harlot, prostitute is zona. Zona. In the Old Testament, we find a few mentions of Israelites as prostitutes or committing prostitution. And this is more often, catch this, it's more often an expression or a metaphor, not meant meant literally. It is meant to accuse and indicate how immoral and uh, unfaithful certain Israelites, or even Israel as a whole, is behaving towards God. In this sense, zona, whore, is a metaphor to describe the unfaithful. Let's take a little detour to discuss this. From the 30,000 foot view, 
we must understand that everything we read in Hosea about Israel and about their illicit behavior and what God likens it to is based on a contract signed between God and Israel centuries earlier at Mount Sinai. There, just a few weeks after delivering, after redeeming Israel from Egypt, God offered his redeemed people a covenant. And at the core of it is what is called the law, or the law of Moses, or the covenant of Moses, or the Mount Sinai covenant, and a few more names that all point to this same transaction. At the foot of Mount Sinai, the entire nation of the twelve tribes of Israel that exited Egypt together, along with a mixed multitude of Gentile tagalongs, were given the opportunity to enter into this special, one-of-a-kind relationship with the Creator of the universe. God offered it to Moses, and Moses, as mediator, offered it to the people of Israel, who responded, by the way, as in Exodus 19.8, all the people answered as one, everything Adonai has said will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Adonai. And at that moment, the covenant was agreed to by all parties and sealed up. The covenant of Moses is much like a marriage contract, mainly because it is the joining of two parties together in a close and exclusive relationship. In fact, from Exodus forward to the end of Revelation, God's relationship with His worshipers is likened to marriage, whereby He is the husband and we are the wife. Now the Scriptures are full of metaphors and illustrations and figurative words and terms and parables and poetry that exaggerates for effect and so on and so forth. So hear, hear this. As God's believers, we do not have a Hebrew marriage contract with God. Rather, the covenant we have with God, based on the covenant of Moses, is like a marriage contract in some ways. It has similarities that are worth exploring and sharing terms. And because marriage contracts and husbands and wives are tangible, visible things, we have a means to relate to them and then carry that over to a better understanding of our expected relationship with God, with Jehovah. However, a marriage contract and our covenant with God are not identical nor exhaustively the same things. Now, one of the literary devices that I left out of that short laundry list of devices that I just mentioned is symbolism. Now, biblical symbolism can be a dicey thing to deal with. Some things in the Bible are deemed symbolic only because they're just too difficult to deal with if they're taken literally. Other things that are intended as symbolic are instead taken literally, and from that supposed literalness, all kinds of strange doctrines are created. How do we tell which is which? Well, there's no clear-cut answer. It can be subjective, and symbolism can usually only be identified by its context. However, the necessary context that is invariably passed over, and this causes us the greatest difficulties in interpretation, is the historical Jewish and Hebrew context, religious and cultural, that explains what certain words, certain actions meant to the people that were alive in the eras when it was spoken and written. This is all the more challenging to approach, because the totality of the Bible was written over a span of around 1500 years. 
Hebrew society changed massively and continually during that long span of centuries. Even the Hebrew language evolved, and so did the use and, and meaning of certain words. Even the expressions were born, only to die off later. Idioms were created. Over time, their meanings might have gotten lost. Evolving societal realities gave the biblical authors new and different ways to express themselves, different from even their more ancient predecessors. The Bible, in original language and form, is given to us in the everyday language and background of the people who were alive at the time. Those who spoke those thoughts, those who wrote them down, did not do so with the thought of far future eras and a planet full of people practicing hundreds of future cultures. Therefore, it's up to us to research, to dig, to study just what those inspired words meant to the people who uttered them and those who first heard them. And then we apply the spirit and the intent of it to the 21st century or even beyond, should God tarry, and to our particular culture or whatever culture that might be. So with that understanding, here's the bottom line. Symbolism is at the heart of what Hosea is being told to do. But symbolism doesn't mean that something's not also tangibly done. Most things in the scriptures that are symbolic also have a strongly literal side to them. Oftentimes the literal acting out was for the present while the symbolic meaning of it was for a later time, although the people who wrote it had no idea that was going to be the case. Hosea was instructed to literally marry, to literally have children with this woman, and to give these children specified names. But the language and the symbolic meaning of what he was instructed to do is the point not the fact that he actually also did these strange things. So knowing now that marriage and marriage terms are commonly used metaphors throughout the Bible to best illustrate the covenant relationship between God and his people, then faithfulness to one another, and thereby faithfulness to the covenant terms, that's the core dynamic of marriage. Vows are undertaken. Just as Israel vowed at Mount Sinai before the Creator to do all that He said to do, meaning all that the law of Moses instructed. Obligations are set down. Blessings for complying with the terms. Curses for breaking the terms. The parties are not necessarily equal in standing or, or placed in equivalent roles. Marriage is a strong bond with actual legal standing in every society on earth or in history. Thus we can call this legal bond of human-to-human -human marriage a covenant between a man and a wife, male to female. Commitment and exclusivity. These are the foundation stones of marriage. Prostitution? That's the very opposite. Prostitution is no commitment. Prostitution is immoral promiscuousness. It involves nothing one could call a relationship. But should prostitution occur within a marriage, then it means that unfaithfulness is entered in and the bond is weakened or it's broken. A female prostitute, and that's really usually all the Bible envisions because that's just how it was in those times, a zona was the definition of false-hearted and untrustworthy. She bore no loyalty to anyone and for a price 
was willing to share her affections with everyone. Most of the time in the Old Testament that we run across the term zona, it is meant metaphorically, not literally. But sometimes it is literal. It is with this symbolic and metaphorical meaning of zona, hor, that we need to understand what Hosea was told to do and what the symbolism of the term prostitute was meant to communicate. The last words of verse 2 confirms this understanding that I'm asking you to accept about the book of Hosea as a whole. Because at the end of verse 2 it says, because the land is engaged in flagrant whoring, whoring away from Adonai. There it is. So we have it. Hosea marrying a prostituting woman is to be symbolically equated to what Ephraim Israel as a corporate community has been doing in the, their relationship with Adonai, with God. The northern kingdom as a whole is in God's eyes behaving as an unfaithful wife to him. A wife who has entered herself into prostitution. They have broken the covenant. So now the question comes. Was this woman that Hosea is to marry actually a practicing prostitute before he married her? Or might not only she had been a prostitute, but continued in her profession even after they were married? I'm going to tell you up front that while we will confront this issue, it's not as important as some Bible scholars make it out to be. No matter which scenario, this might have been doesn't have any real effect on the meaning or the direction of God's message to Hosea and Hosea's then to Israel. And that's the subject we'll open up with next time. Okay?